And what a privilege. I always appreciate being able to sing and not hear myself, so thank you. uh, What a good sweetness that God has given us, the church family, to worship together, to be encouraged by, to look and share the faith with so that we are looking to the same Savior, the same hope, the same grace, the same confidence that the Holy Spirit at work in me is at work in you. Um, Give so much confidence to the church family as we walk side by side for the cause of Christ in the gospel together. If you have your Bibles, open them to Proverbs chapter 12. I'm going to start with where I intended to start at the beginning of my preparation and then lead you to where I ended, which is a different place than I started. Um... The goal, I, I, reading through Proverbs, and I've been spending quite a bit of time in Proverbs as I just consider the needs of our church to grow in godliness in practical ways, kind of the walk with wisdom theme that I've been using on those notes, is that we often are really, really bad at receiving rebuke. And when you read through Proverbs, there's this thematic presence of correction, rebuke, reproof, discipline. And so I give you chapter 12, verse 1 as just a sampling. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. He doesn't mince words, does he? He who hates reproof is stupid. I know some of you parents are like, oh, I am trying to get my kid to stop saying that word. Thank you, pastor, for saying that in public. Uh, I I understand we don't want our children to be harsh when they shouldn't be, but perhaps the scripture here is harsh on purpose. Now think about what he's saying. Hey, if you hate listening to correction and reproof, if you don't like hearing verbal words that say you're not thinking right, you're not doing right, there's a better way. If you don't want to hear it, you're foolish. You're stupid. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to, Work through Proverbs and teach a sermon on receiving rebuke. But there is a consistent theme in receiving a rebuke. Receive it. Like, like there's not a thematic strength in Proverbs. It's a repetition. It tells us again and again, a wise man receives correction. A wise man listens to rebuke. A wise man hears and learns and increases in knowledge. A wise man leans into the pain the wounding of a friend that's faithful. And as I'm walking through these passages on rebuke, more and more I'm seeing that the burden lies in the reprover. And the instruction is about reproving, not listening to reproof. It's just a simple kind of green light. When people are rebuking, you listen and learn. So so let me back up and talk about rebuke and um, correction in a way that maybe sets the stage for you well. And then kind of gives this, I think, this primary principle that we should be people who are engaging in correction, both as recipients and givers. But when you think about the role of correction, immediately probably jumping to your mind are two or three roles within society. Who does most of the correcting in our world? Think about that for a second. Probably two or three classes of people. Teachers. And I'm going to include in there coaches, and then whom else? Parents. 
right? Like you get those two. Take those out of the picture. What other times? Perhaps you would have included boss, employer, supervisor, manager, something like that. But they are a distant third. Uh, this, this last week I was sharing this with my wife and coworkers because I thought it was really fascinating. One of the number one complaints about millennials is they can't handle correction. They cannot take it. And yet in their evaluations, they say, please give me feedback. The analysis of the author who's written some bestsellers on leadership management and the business world said, so here's the problem with millennials. They want feedback. They just think it should all be positive. And, and, and dissecting that from our culture, it's really the fault of the baby boomers because they started this kind of trophy, participation trophy generation where everyone who just merely is breathing gets an award for existing. And so they're never corrected. And when I say they, I'm talking about us. That's most of us in this room. We have lived in a culture for 40 plus years that does not want to tell anyone they've made a mistake. And then they get into the professional world where merit matters, and all of a sudden they're getting criticized. Or their spouse is frustrated, and all of a sudden the spouse is launching verbal grenades in the house because their failure to perform as a, as a husband or as a wife, and, and they don't know how to take criticism. So, let's just back up and ask the question, is it a legitimate Christian practice to reprove and rebuke? I mean, should we be resistant to the participation trophy type of culture that never corrects anyone, that always like pats them on the back and says, good job for just showing up? Or should we be a little bit different than our culture in this way? So, so let me just suggest to you that, generally speaking, we should be people who are very careful and cautious to give verbal correction, but we should be giving it. So Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Our culture is saying, love me, please. But they redefine love as never giving someone disappointing correction. Better is open rebuke. It's superior. So maybe we could rephrase it this way. I think it's a little more clear in terms of the theme of the text. Better is declared rebuke than undeclared love. Right? Undeclared love does no one any good. This is probably me in junior high. I would maybe have a crush on a girl. I want to acknowledge that publicly, but I would never tell her. And she would move on because there was nothing ever said. She had no clue. I mean, I was the shy guy. I would never say anything to anybody. And the last thing I wanted to do is say something and they ever not like me. That's horrible. What good did that do to have a junior high crush on a girl that you never say anything to? It does no one any good, neither her nor me. And frankly, I'm thankful it did no good. <laughs> but would you rather be loved or rebuked? There's a, there's a challenge here to consider that rebuke doesn't feel good. Being loved feels good. But the difference is that a hidden love, an undeclared love, does nobody any good. Where a declared rebuke that's spoken actually can help you improve. It's an expression of love then to rebuke. Verse, the next verse says, faithful. This is verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuses are the kisses of an enemy. You should be skeptical of someone who so lavishly loves you, particularly in public, that they're kissing you all over the place. They're trying to sell you something. They're trying to convince you of something. But a genuine friend gives wounds that can be trusted. A genuine friend is willing to wound you. Proverbs 9.8, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. 
Reprove a wise man and he will love you. So we're kind of like synthesizing multiple verses here. Let me suggest to you that the Proverbs are clearly communicating that good, wise people offer gentle correction. And we'll get to the gentleness in a few moments. But they offer correction to friends and loved ones precisely because they are friends and loved ones. It is unloving to not speak when someone is going to do damage to their character or particularly to the honor of Christ. The art of helping others requires we speak. So the text for this morning is in Proverbs 25. I'm going to look at verses 11, 12, and 15 in particular and use a lot of other Proverbs to kind of strengthen our understanding of this text. So um, if you... If for some reason you need all of the verses from this sermon, I can get them to you. I'd rather you not be distracted. Proverbs 25, let me read verses 11, 12, and 15. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. And then down in verse 15. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. We look at the, these words in front of us, and I think if we take our time and slow down, you can see really clearly that in verse 11, he's challenging the reader to speak. And I would suggest in the context, he's saying speak correction. That is, a wise person is the one who has a word that is spoken at the right time, that we actually do speak up. So if we are going to be given, giving verbal correction, it is imperative that we do it in a way in which we successfully help a person move in godliness or Christ-likeness. Okay, so here's the premise. Christians must be those who speak diligently and thoughtfully to one another in such a way to promote their godliness, even if the other person doesn't like how it feels. And how do you do this? Verse 11, a word spoken. You got to talk. You have to communicate verbal correction. Um, as we move on, then, if that's the premise, then here's the practice. Wise correction looks for appropriate times to correct. You look for an appropriate time to correct. Again, it's a word spoken when? At the right time. And I think it's actually broader than merely just time. Maybe you could say in the appropriate setting. It gives a broader sense. It's not merely like, oh, you know, you don't do well at night. You're grumpy at night, so I'm going to rebuke you in the morning. And regardless of the people around or the situation, it's like, I rebuke from 7 a.m. to noon. That's not the point. The point is this. There's a timing, a placing, a context that matters. A word spoken at the right time is like gold apples on a silver tray. Again, I think the, the, the broader sense of this verb is something like this, or this, this verse is something like this, that, that this golden correction is to the timing like a silver setting. And we take that golden correction and we place it and frame it in this beautiful setting when we look for the appropriate time and place and context so that... We speak when it's good. Good for what? I think good for the listener to hear. Good for them to hear us in the best way. Proverbs 15, 23. 
To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good it is. As you read the Proverbs, you see again and again this call to give life-giving instruction. Right? The words of the wise are a path leading to life. They're like the tree of life. And, and so seeing someone discouraged, speaking at the right time means you probably don't wait till they figure it out and get encouraged on their own. You preemptively speak words to build and strengthen. Likewise, if you see someone discouraged, it's probably not the time to pile on. Even if it's an appropriate correction, sometimes you realize this person has just gone through a series of life's defeats. They don't need to hear a word from me that will add burden to already bending and breaking shoulders. To make an apt answer is a joy. A word in season, how good it is. Proverbs 12, 18, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. My presumption on diligent is that there's times you spank your kids, speak to your kids, rebuke your kids, reprove your kids. You give them consequences, timeouts and things like this. And when do you do this? Well, if you're doing it diligently, the word is lots. Right? You do it lots. So can I just speak to you parents real directly? I will speak for my home. We are pro-parent. If your child misbehaves at our home, please correct them. Be diligent about it. We probably won't do it out loud, but we will be cheering on the inside. We want to see parents win in this battle to correct and reprove and instruct your children in a way that's healthy. Have you ever felt that pressure? Your child is in a public setting and behaves in such a way you know you need to bring parental correction. But you feel this societal nervousness. If I do what I should do, what will they think? You ever, you ever maybe I'm the only parent that's ever felt that way, Child's melting in Walmart. They want a candy bar. It's not good for their nutrition or my wallet. And I'm thinking, no, we're not going to do the candy bar now. And all of a sudden, it is on. They're going to throw down, and they're going to go toe-to-toe with dad, and they're going to win because they have, the, they have the weapons of public warfare at their disposal. You guys know what I'm talking about. You've been there. And you're kind of doing this like, Look around like, okay, who's watching and what can I get away with in Walmart? If you're disciplining diligently, there's appropriate times. You guys have probably also had that embarrassing moment when you watch a parent shame a child in public and use shame to press the discipline home. Godliness means that we consider the situation, the context, the person, where their spirit is at, and even things like their vocabulary. Every once in a while, people say I use big words. I try not to talk to my four-year-old like I talk to you all. Right? Like, like we're going to use a context and, and terminology that is understandable and can be held on to by that child or by that other adult. So we don't speak simply to communicate. We speak so that they receive it. Um, perhaps you can think about like playing ball with a little child. Some of you notice this because you, you like play with your children in such a way that like you'll toss them a ball. 
If you get like a two-year-old, it's really, I mean, I recommend doing this with soft things. But if you have your two-year-old standing there, they want to play catch with you. And so they look at you and they have open hands and they're ready to catch the ball. Right? So you get like little plushy toy balls so they don't get hurt. And you toss it to them. And here's what will happen. The child will be sitting there and they'll go, and the ball's on the ground. You've hit them right in the nose. And their reflexes are too slow to catch and hold. And so you slow it down and you're so close that they can't help but catch it. And then as that child matures, they're able to catch. And pretty soon, one day, they'll be throwing and catching better than you. When you talk to people, you understand context. Listen, you're a jerk if you're throwing 80-mile-an-hour fastballs at a three-year-old. Some of you talk like that. Or you have someone who's clearly spiritually wounded. They've got no glove in their hand. They're not even looking. And there's a fastball coming at them. Listen, appropriateness speaks to recognizing the person and their situation in such a way that they catch and appreciate the significance of what's being said. A wise person corrects not only at an appropriate time, but with wise content. Look at the next uh, verse here, verse 12 with me. A wise correction to receptive ear is like a gold ring or an ornament of gold. Now, I thought it was interesting just in terms of like cultural context here. We're probably talking about like a gold wedding ring that would have been in the girl's nose. So, you know, I'm not necessarily advocating nose rings, but I always find it culturally interesting when a generation is like, my kids will never wear a nose ring. That's evil. And I'm like, okay, mm. verses like this, like when God gives Israel a nose ring, and is it Isaiah or Ezekiel? And you're thinking, it's probably not this like transcendental principle that nose rings are evil. And here the picture is, is that bride is made beautiful by this golden piece of jewelry, this precious, beautiful thing. Um, that was just extra. I just thought you guys should get that. Wise correction to receptive ear is this beautiful piece of jewelry in a beautiful woman who's loved face or body, right? Like it accentuates the beauty. It's an expression of love and um, care. A wise correction, though. It's a wise correction. It's not just correction. It's a, in case you missed it, wise correction, okay? Proverbs 13, 14, the teaching of a wise person is a fountain of life because it turns people away from the snares of death. Proverbs 4, 11, I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. Correction is inherently intended to be righteous and upright and giving wisdom, and leading to goodness, and turning them away from sin. Correction is not amoral fixing. It is meant to be moving people towards Christ. So, so I, I think here we, we, we need to recognize that sometimes our correction has more to do with us than Christ. So I'm looking at you, parents with annoying kids. Your heart matters. So when your kid is frustrating you and they get the parental whack, that's about you. 
But when your child is annoying and you're looking at this saying, this will hurt their development. This is not a good or gracious nor Christ-like type of characteristic in my child. This needs to be challenged. And you make it about promoting in your child character, both for the integrity of Christ's reputation as well as the ultimate Christ-likeness of this person, then what is motivating you is love for them, not love for you. And like we've already read, a good father reproves his child out of love for his child. I mean, if you didn't know that that's what the proverb meant, it doesn't mean self-love. So as parents, sometimes we, we are frustrated or hurt or injured. So, so here's some like, helpful ways maybe to, to think through this. If your response is proportional to the injury to your stuff, Right, so your child comes stomping in with muddy shoes on a tile floor in your back area of your house. And you're like, oh, honey, just go outside and wash your shoes off. Versus when they come stomping in the front, front door on your carpet with muddy shoes and you go apoplectic. That means you've lost it, you're angry, and you don't even know how to talk, you're so furious. What's the difference in the child's behavior? Probably your carpet and your workload. It's all about you. So when your responses are, I am angry because I am hurt or injured, or I want your behavior to be different because I don't like it, and you're the central motivation for correction, you probably should clamp your words down and get your heart right. Reproof and correction is wise in content, its goal is to move them towards Christ. Now, sometimes that will be in your benefit, parents, spouses, bosses, right? Like, when your child behaves like Jesus did and does, I'm pretty confident they'll be a more pleasant child. Right? They'll, they'll be more careful with property because these are things God cares about. But often what motivates us is our own pain and suffering. So wise correction must not be selfish. It must demonstrably be biblical or it is not wise. So let me, let me just like tease this out as a parental point. When you see your child disobey you, is that about you or about God? Okay, so I want you to think through this. Uh, let's say I, I tell my four-year-old, please come. And the child refuses to come. And that makes me upset. And so I respond with correction. I would like to think that what I'm calling that child to is obedience to God. Because I know what God says about children and obedience. What does it say? Well, yeah, we're, we're on this one. Children obey your parents. So who are they disobeying? They're disobeying God. And I want them to see that. So, for instance, with a four-year-old, you might say something like, now, son, you know what the Bible says about parents. It says, children, obey your parents. That's mommy and daddy. What I don't want my child to learn is that obedience is about me. Now, I am the dad in that picture. But that's not why they obey. They obey because who has told them to obey? God has told them to obey. They're accountable to him. They're his creature. They're made by him for his glory. They're not made for my glory. They're put in my house for God's glory. 
I'm a steward that's called to lead this child to love Christ and adore him. So my discipline and my responses, my correction of a child must be driven not by what I feel, but by what the Bible says about how one must live. And so too, as we take that principle and we leach that into all these other areas of life, like my interaction with other adults in our church or my coworkers, if what drives my responses is how it makes me feel, I'm probably living in selfishness. If, on the other hand, my responses are driven by a clear-eyed view of how one should live in light of God's, making them, judging them, and wanting them to be redeemed by his son, then my conversations can be much more grace-filled. And I think that actually leads us, and, and to me this is kind of a, it's not the central point of the sermon, but it goes back a little bit to where I started. Look at what the verse says. Not only are we to be um, having good content, wise content, but we must be wise in who we speak to. A wise person corrects learners. Right? Like, look at verse 12. Wise correction to a what type of ear? Receptive ear. So a receptive ear is someone who listens. And I, I mentioned that that Proverbs is kind of monochromatic, singular in its, in its coloring of this phrase of listening to rebuke. In other words, what are you supposed to do when someone rebukes you? Receive it, listen. Listen, listen, receive. It's pretty similar throughout the book of Proverbs. So, for instance, Proverbs 13, 18. Poverty and disgrace comes to him who ignores instruction, but whoever heeds or listens to reproof is honored. I already read Proverbs 12.1. The one who loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Proverbs 13.1. A wise son hears his father's instruction. The scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Proverbs 15.31. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Proverbs 17.10. Rebuke goes deeper into the man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Wise people listen. So look for the wise around you. Cultivate a listening spirit in your children. So both my wife and I have certain diseases that make it hard for our children to listen. We overtalk. Some of you have a hard time imagining me talking too long, but if you really stretch, you can get there. And almost you can see their listening decline which means I should talk longer because they're clearly like starting to not hear, so I should speak more. It, it's interesting how we, we are kind of enslaved to weird or bad habits as, as those who are helping others correct. But let me suggest it this way. If, in fact, I want to be a wise corrector, what I want to cultivate in those I'm speaking to is an ear to hear, which probably means something like reaffirming and demonstrating my love for them clarifying the biblical truth that I'm trying to communicate. Hey, this isn't just dad. This isn't just, you know, me as a husband to my wife. This is actually what God says. This is who you should be listening to of all people is the one who made you and knows you. Listen to this. I want to cultivate in those who hear who I'm trying to correct a willingness to lean in and receive. It probably also says something about volume. Have any of you ever had the experience of turning on some electronic device and having it at full volume? 
you almost physically lean back. And sometimes you actually do. Sometimes when we correct others, we come with such intensity or such verbal harshness that internally they're leaning away from us rather than hearing us. Wise correction to a receptive ear is a beautiful thing that accentuates the beauty of the person we love. That's the picture of this proverb. What an encouragement. The thought that we can give help to someone to enhance their Christ-like beauty with words of correction. If you have developed in your home a culture or your workplace a culture where no one corrects anyone, it is in fact a very unloving culture. On the other hand, if you've developed a culture that's always correcting, that likewise is an unloving culture. Because there's, there's no way you're constantly correcting and waiting for the appropriate time and filling those words with wisdom and speaking them with words of love. The wise person corrects learners. It's interesting, Proverbs has these themes, and forgive me for not having out the front of my mind the references, but don't reprove a scoffer. Don't reprove a fool. So like in, in later, I think it's chapter 27, where he calls us to be careful how we speak to a fool. Because if we speak to a fool and correct him, we might be like him. But if we don't speak to him, his folly stands and is listened to. So when we have to interact with people who aren't wise, we have a whole different set of care and cautions put in front of us. Looking at verse 15, wise help corrects with patience. Now, by patience, I don't mean persistent nagging. I mean with a hope and a confidence that God will work. With a hope and a confidence that what is said is not only biblical and therefore true and lasting, but that the God of grace will ultimately bring about conviction in this person's heart. We do not bring it. God does. Listen, look with me in verse 15. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded. Now his point is, rulers, you've got you to deal with them a little bit more carefully. You don't go into the king and say, hey, do this. And then when he says, yeah, I don't think so, I'll say, you better. That's how you lose your head. Right? So, so when you come and speak to the king and you're trying to convince him, you don't do it with harshness. You don't do it with aggression. You certainly don't like, consider his intellect less than smart. Right? Like you, don't, you don't insult him. Siri did not like that. So when you look at this, it's patience leads this ruler to be persuaded. So verse, uh, chapter 27, verse 14, whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's hand. Again and again, Proverbs reminds us to be cautious that we do not become an irritant by nagging and persistent repetition. Now, let me just give you a little bit of a pass, ladies. Since Solomon's writing to his son, I don't expect him to say a nagging husband because his son wouldn't be looking for a husband. He'd be looking for a wife. That's why there's a virtuous woman at the end of Proverbs 31 because he's writing to a son. And, and this is written to a, a male audience in its perspective. Guys, you can be nags too. <laughs> this, right, this, perhaps there are some proclivities in our gender orientation in terms of words. 
although Arizona State did a study, I think it was 2020, it was actually like a 10-year study, so it wasn't just in 2020, that actually their top eight speakers were all men. They did a, a thorough research on how many words a day a person speaks. It's about 16,000 for those of you that care about mindless or for pointless facts. And men were the top eight talkers. So all of those who think that scientifically it's proven that women talk more, we all know that to be true, but apparently the newest research is trying to prove otherwise. <laughs> Ecclesiastes 10.4. If a ruler's, I've got to move on. I'm in trouble. Proverbs, uh, excuse me, Ecclesiastes 10.4. If the ruler's anger rises against you, don't leave your place. For calmness puts great offense to rest. Again, talking about talking to a king or someone who's in power, and you're coming as someone who's at their mercy in some sense. Calmness and gentleness and stability are a way to win a king. That is, stably standing your ground in gentleness and calmness is the way to approach. This should remind you again of like 1 Peter 3 where it says that the wife who has a husband who's disobedient to the word of God can be won without a word by the gentle and quiet spirit of the wife. Now let me, let me just like, I, I think the power of that statement is, is compelling. If they're not obedient to the word Whose word? It's God's word. The living, powerful, spirit-energized word of God. If they don't listen to that, wife, do you think you're going to change your husband with a couple words? Repeated? No. Trust God's word. So the wife whose, whose husband is not obedient to the word hopes to win her husband without her words. But she shows and preaches to her husband the power of Scripture, or the Word, by having a gentle and quiet spirit that shows conformity to God's Word in her life. And the reason I, I suggest that that's helpful for us in the light of Proverbs is sometimes, and again, this isn't necessarily all about parenting, but I think it's one of the contexts in which we're most responsible to be active in correction. But it also is true of the body of Christ. And sometimes we actually correct with a lack of patience, and we use verbal power tools. We use manipulation. We use anger. We distort the facts. We use threats or bribes. Listen, if we want to move someone to Christ-likeness, I don't know that we want to abandon the idea of rewards or consequences. I think Proverbs is a call us to a wise use of them. But at the same time, if the only reason your child is cleaning his room is because you're going to pay them 40 bucks, I'll come clean your room. <laughs> it's not about care. You're appealing to their own selfishness. Right? Like, they've become an employee, not an obedient child. So, so when you look through, like, what Scripture is calling us to do, it's calling us away from power tools. If I can use that word again. Power tools get a lot of work done very fast. Instead, this is calling us to faith-oriented words. I am, I am appealing on the basis of the eternal truth of God's word, the hope that the Holy Spirit lies within particularly believers, but that God's truth will always stand regardless of their faith. And I am going to be patient because this is not a circumstantial claim. This is a, a scriptural-based claim. And I'm going to be gentle and firm and patient. So it should call us away from the types of claims that cannot be um, backed by Scripture. It should call us away from nagging, pestering, or becoming quiet, or even giving up on a person. Instead, patience implies we suffer a long time. That's the word in the New Testament, long-suffering. 
that we are patient with a person, we hope that God will change them, and our hope in God is steadfast. Paul would say it this way, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. We don't have to use those power tools of anger or tears or threats or manipulation because we have God's word. We have truth. And that could be the problem. It's a whole lot easier to use manipulation than actually know what the Bible says about this event. It's a whole lot easier just to unleash my, my sorrow and sadness than it is to call my, my child or my nephew to behave differently in light of Scripture. It's a whole lot easier to call them to see in me the reason to obey than to look at the unseen Christ. Now look what your words have done to me. Look what your behavior has done to me. You should never do this as opposed to those words, those actions don't please your Savior. But I think that, that leads to one of the ways we shouldn't do correction. Correction's not about you. It's about loving the other person. Right? They, loving them, requires us to understand how to move them to Christ through the use of the truth in a gracious way as we correct. Finally, wise help corrects with gentleness. A ruler might be persuaded with patience. Did you notice that last line? A soft tongue or a gentle word will break a bone. Bones aren't typically easy to break. They're actually resilient and fascinating in the strength and the forces on them and their ability to withstand them with um, structural integrity. A gentle word can break them. How powerful then is a gentle word. And again, it's that calling away from the, the power tools, the anger, uh, the manipulation, the accusation. Listen, someone may tell a lie or may exaggerate a story. We don't have to come in and say, you're a liar. You might want to come in and say, hey, I, I remember those events a little differently than you. With super gentle entry. But oftentimes, to make our point, to make it clear, and, and to really help them see it, we amplify or exaggerate or strengthen the, the terminology. Again, gentleness. Those who are rash, that means quick to speak and do not consider their words. Their words are like sword thrusts. Listen, if you respond intuitively when hurt or angry, you are probably going to sin. Proverbs 16, 21. The wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. So if you want someone to eat food, you can add two things to it. Seems to be consistent across the board. I mean, I am no like, culinary expert, but it seems to me two things are really, really loved. Sugar and fat. I mean, just think Twinkie. Right? Like something sugary and fatty and greasy and deep fried, like a donut. Like, I'm not trying to make you all hungry. You realize you're getting restless right now. Like, what other food is he going to list? But the fact is, like, you get one of those, it's really good. You get both of those, and it's crack. Like, it's trouble. <laughs> that's, that's how, like, we're built to want the things that give us juice to go. And that's those things, right? That's the reason we're all staying away from it. 
Because in America, we have so much surplus, we actually need to starve ourselves. Otherwise, we will die of being overweight. Because there's so much goodness around us. Listen. Sweet words make people want to hear us. Sometimes we use harsh words to get our kids to listen and change. Or we use threats with our spouse. Or we tell our coworkers things unkindly to get them to move. Or we speak in the church and, and we use overcharged and intense terminology to communicate a point that a couple questions would bring. Sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Good sense is a fountain of life to him who has it, but the instruction of fools is folly. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious. That is, it's careful. And he adds persuasiveness to his lips. That means he adds sugar to his words. It makes them sweet like honey. Our words don't need to be clubs to get people to move. They need to be sweet, biblical, clear calls to follow Christ. Your anger will not help you. Your hurt will actually cloud the clarity of Christ. Gentleness is powerful. Content is powerful. Your life in submission to God's word is incredibly powerful. So give the Christian you're speaking to clear content. Express your love and affection for them. Speak with gentleness. Trust that God will change them by being patient. This is how we correct one another. No one wants to be in a church that is just sniffing out the sin Dare they find something in you and they attack you as soon as they smell it. That's miserable. No one wants to be in a church like that where you're walking on pins and needles just waiting for the club of some self-righteous Pharisee to whack you. You're playing whack-a-mole and you're the mole. That's miserable. But on the other hand, if you know that you have a sweet brother or sister in Christ that when they see you struggling, loves you so dearly that they spend time praying, They consider scripture and how to speak carefully and clearly to you. With gentleness, they come to you. And with sweet words, they appeal to you. And they themselves are living the same way they're calling you to live. Wouldn't that be convincing? Maybe one of the reasons that I tend to use power tools like maybe you do with my words, intensity or fierceness or anger or manipulation is either because I don't know scripture, my correction's about me, or I want to get something done quick and I'm not patient. I would like to flip this around. The intention of my initial study was to teach you how to hear rebuke because I want to be someone who hears rebuke well. So as I look at this text, If verbal correction is part of the Christian walk, whether it's with our children, our spouses, our co-workers, our church family, then I want to be a learner and not require that someone does it perfectly for me to hear words of correction. I want to look for biblical content. Like when they correct me and they don't do it well, I still want to listen and lean in and be like, what are they saying? What are they trying to say? What does scripture actually say about this? What do I need to be hearing that they may not be saying very biblically? Some of you are Bible students. You know the scriptures. And someone comes to you and they're like, hey, I don't know what you just did, but that was a, ugh. Like, oh, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. Well, stop. Ask yourself, what does the Bible say about that, ugh, that they couldn't even express? 
Maybe I was gossiping. And they're just uncomfortable. They're a new Christian. They don't even know the biblical word. But you do. So when someone corrects you, look for the biblical foundation that should have led to that correction and let the Spirit hit you between the eyes. Timing. Although it is right for them to look for appropriate timing, can you welcome correction even when it embarrasses you or isn't in the right context? In other words, give people a broad platform with lots of opportunity to speak truth to you without you being offended or hurt or unresponsive. Even though they should have done better, demanding that they thread the needle on the right moment and the right spirit and the right people around you to talk to you is pretty impossible. So give them a broad opening to speak the truth to you. Respond with gentleness. If they are correcting out of love, and sometimes it's not always pure love, assume the best about those correcting you. Now, I would like to think that I always correct my children out of love, but I'm, I'm a sinner, I don't. But it'd be really helpful if every time I corrected my children, they could know for sure that this is coming from a place of deep affection and loyalty towards them. It would make them learn faster and easier. It would make our home a sweeter place. How much more among adults? Where very few people correct us with, with clear calls of correction, do we need to make sure we lean into and presume the best of their spirit and assume that they're saying this out of love? I mean, really, do you think someone took the courage and took the time to come and talk to you about something you could do better because they don't like you? Generally speaking, that's not true. I mean, we've all been in that moment where we just want to put someone in their place. But generally speaking, we shouldn't be like that, and they aren't. Finally, respond with peace. Uh, scripture says that like the pressing of the nose brings about blood, so too does the pressing of anger bring about conflict. And the point is this, is that when people push they nag and they press for change. Oftentimes, conflict results. So when someone's pushing on you, when someone's pressing on you, don't give in to anger that leads to conflict. That's the temptation. That's the natural response. Don't go there. All right, so those, those are kind of like the, the reverse image. Like if this is what God says about a corrector, someone who's trying to help someone, I want to look on the backside and say, okay, what does it look like to be the one being corrected? That's where that all came from. So let me just repeat this for you. A wise person uses gentleness, patience, tries to cultivate in the other person a learning spirit. Their content is wise, and they look for appropriate times. But we are called to do this as God's people. I think our circle of uh, friends and influence and loyalties allows us to know who to do it to most and least. Going up to some random person you barely know who just joined our church and launching criticism is probably not your place. Particularly when your spouse next to you is doing the same thing and you won't say anything to her. Right? But like you have a deep obligation to your spouse. You have a deep obligation to your children. You have a deep obligation to those you're walking close fellowship with in the church. And then it's lesser for those that are outside of those circles. But even as we join in a church together, we're a place where truth should thrive. So, let's be people who are very generous when corrected, very careful to be biblical when correcting others. But we must be a place that helps 
one another grow in Christ-likeness. For you parents who have the horde of kids over in the other building, thank you for growing our church through bringing children into this world. You are called to be correcting well. Be godly, be diligent, be gentle, be patient. Work through the scripture so you can speak truth and you know it's true. Don't give up on your kids. There is hope as long as you're using God's word and the Holy Spirit is alive and those things are eternal. Don't give up on your kids. Some of you have 18-year-old kids, you have 30-year-old kids. Don't give up. Keep finding ways to love them by pointing them to the truth and do so lovingly with gentleness. Don't give up. Isn't that what Proverbs says? Don't stop correcting your kid. Don't, don't give up hope. It actually says, don't set your heart on killing him. Because in the Old Testament, that might be what you do with a rebel adult kid. Don't set your heart on killing him. Don't give up hope as long as he's alive. Don't give up hope. Use your words to be ministers of grace to those around you by calling people to follow Christ, particularly when they don't see it. You all are watching our blind side. So when we don't see stuff well, you're the ones that help us see it. And that's why it's so gracious to be in a body of Christ, committed to careful, thoughtful, gracious help. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I ask that you'd help us to be like we should. It is really, really hard for us to receive correction from others. Lord, we know we need it. No one in this room would have the audacity or the stupidity to claim that they're sinless. And so oftentimes, our sin is something we don't know about. We're unaware of the ways we're misstepping. And so we need the instruments of grace you've put in our lives. Whether they're other believers outside of our household or within our household, Lord, thank you for those who love us enough to help us, to rebuke us, to correct us, to point out areas of weakness. Lord, I pray that you would help us to hear well those who correct us. And Lord, in reverse, I ask that you would strengthen our relationships so that there would be enough strength in the friendships and the loyalties and the common faith that we could speak the truth to one another. Father, at the end of our days, our ability to receive correction from people who are ministers of your word will have a direct impact on our eternal glory. It will have a direct impact on the glory that you receive from people who are being conformed into your image. Lord, help us to live for the treasure of heaven by being gentle and receiving rebuke today and by being diligent to love others enough to reprove them as well. Lord, help our church never to be the type of place that is hypercritical, but to always be filled with a generous spirit, assuming and presuming the best, hoping all things, and loving each other sincerely but also help us to do that in such a way that we stir and provoke and promote in one another good works because they love Christ our Savior. Help us, we pray. Lord, we could get this wrong so easily and become a harsh place. We could get this wrong in the other way and be a very permissive place. Lord, rather, I ask that you would help us to hit the Christ-like spirit of calling the proud to repentance and giving comfort and grace to the humble. We ask that you might do this in Jesus' name. Amen.